This is episode 205 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Myths About Poverty with Mark Rank. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the mostly self-explanatory show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. This show is a reboot of Dear Discreet Guide, which ended with 202 episodes at the end of year 2020. So thank you for joining us in the new show. I'm excited to see where this new adventure will take us. I am so delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today. Mark Rank is with us, and I'll introduce him. He's a social scientist and Herbert S. Hadley Professor of Social Welfare at Washington University in St. Louis, known for his work on poverty, social welfare, economic inequality, and social policy. He is an expert in poverty studies, and I'm really interested to talk to him today about his new book, uh, but first, his other books include Living on the Edge, The Realities of Welfare in America from 1994, One Nation Underprivileged, Why American Poverty Affects Us All from 2005, Chasing the American Dream, Understanding What Shapes Our Fortunes, 2014, and then the new book, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty, which came out this year and which was co-written with Lawrence M. Heppard and Heather E. Bullock. So welcome to the show, Mark. Oh, thanks, Jennifer. It's great to be with you. Mark, I have to apologize first because I think it's when we have somebody of your caliber on the show and we've only got you for an hour, and I'm basically asking you to summarize your decades of work in an hour, uh, interrupted by my always not very helpful questions. I always feel like, oh, this is this is really kind of a challenge. Uh, but so I really appreciate you taking the time to help educate us. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I mean, oftentimes you get the the question of, well, if you're in an elevator and you got 30 seconds, uh, you know, what's your what's the point you want to make? So uh, this is sort of an extended elevator uh, trip. <laughs> OK, good. Yeah. At least it's not 30 seconds. Exactly. Let's start with some basics here. So what is the definition of someone who's living in poverty in the U.S.? Yeah, so that's a great place to start. And actually, I teach a course every semester on poverty, and that's where we start as well. So <clears throat> the way that um, poverty is officially measured in the United States, I mean, I should first say there are many ways of thinking about this, but the way that it's officially measured in the United States is that there is a line drawn in terms of income, annual income. And the idea is that if you fall below that level of income, you're considered in poverty. If you're above that level of income, you're not considered in poverty. So for this past year, the poverty line for a family of three 
was around $20,000, um, a little bit over that. So families that, you know, that had three people in the household and that were earning less than that for the year were counted as in poverty. And, um, you know, the way that it's, it, it's, it's kind of been set for the last, uh, the poverty line was first established in 1964. Uh, President Johnson declared a war on poverty. And if you're going to declare a war on somebody, you should know the strength of the enemy. And so that's when we first began measuring poverty. And, uh, and that's pretty much how it's done. Uh, it varies on the size of the household, but it's, it's this idea of falling below a certain level of income. And if you do that, you're going to really have a tough time uh, kind of living on a day-to-day basis. 20000 for a family of three sounds nigh impossible. It is. And, and when you sort of, uh, you know, kind of work that out into what that means on a daily basis, it's, it's extremely, uh, extremely tight. But here's, here's another really important point, that for everybody in, uh, in poverty in the United States, about 45% of folks in poverty fall below one half of the poverty line. So instead of thinking about $20,000, imagine a family of three trying to survive on less than $10,000 a year. And again, about half of folks in poverty fall into this sort of extreme level of poverty. Okay. And so just to clarify, how do we determine uh, what their income is? Do we do it by tax returns or surveying people? How do we do that? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's also a great question. Um, the way that it's done is there's a survey every year. It's called the Current Population Survey, and it's conducted by the Census Bureau. And that's done in March of every year. And it asks a bunch of questions for a large sample of Americans, a, a representative sample. And one of the questions that they ask is what uh, the annual income of the household was for the past year. And that's where we get both the levels of poverty in the United States and we get uh, each year reports on what annual income is for Americans in the United States. So that's that's how it's collected and it's done, uh, as I said, every uh, every March and then asked for the for the prior year. Yeah, again, I just feel as though asking some of these questions is is really a challenge. We've got a huge populated country with an enormously complicated economic system, and I'm asking these really basic questions of you, so bear with me. So how many people do you think are currently living in poverty in the U.S., and can you give us a sense of how many of those are children? Yeah, so um, so if we take this this way that poverty is uh, kind of officially measured, then for this last year for 2020, uh, the poverty rate was 11.4 percent. So in other words, 11.4 percent of Americans fell below the poverty line. That was around a little over 37 million Americans. Now, if we say, okay, that's a pretty extreme measure. What if we say, increase it by 50% and say, you know, if you fall below 150% of the poverty line, then the percentage of Americans gets upward to about 20% um, with about 60 million folks falling into poverty. If you look at children, which was the second part of your question, interestingly and, and, um, and troublingly, 
uh, children are actually the age group most at risk of poverty in the United States, particularly young children. So the, the overall rate for children under the age of 18 uh, was 16.1% in terms of the poverty rate, and that was about 11 and a half million children. So, uh, so that's that's kind of a, a bit of the you know the lay of the land in terms of what the scope of poverty is. And I should say that over the last 30 or 40 years, the poverty rate in the United States has tended to vary between 10 and 15 percent. It tends to go up during bad economic times, such as we've been been experiencing this past year, and it tends to go down during good economic times. Okay, let's just run through some examples here. Say we have a grocery store clerk, a cashier who has two children. Uh, she's put her children into childcare or school, but so she's working full time, and her job pays her fifteen dollars an hour. Is she likely to qualify in our category here as living in poverty? Yeah, she probably would. You know, if you're making. Um, $15 an hour or less, and, you, and there's three people in that household, you're probably earning below that kind of 20,000 mark that I, uh, that, I was, um, that I was referring to earlier. Um, the other thing that you're bringing up, which is a really important point, is what are her expenses? And uh, as we know, childcare in the United States can be quite expensive. Um, and so if we factor that in, then certainly uh, I would consider her as falling below the, you know, into poverty. Yeah. And I guess my point here, which, you know, you make really eloquently in the book, and I haven't talked about that book yet, but I, I really do recommend that people read it or that read uh, some of the other books that you've written about poverty is the point that you make over and over is these are everyday people. These are people that you're in encountering and often working people. And I'm sure that I walk past cashiers in the grocery store that are exactly in this situation. So let's do another one. Of How about a full-time student who's working 20 hours a week at a work-study job and they're paid $11 an hour at that? Would that person be considered in poverty? Well, so here we have, that's an interesting case because if we're just looking at straight up income, then yes, that person is probably also going to be in poverty. However, if we look at their circumstances, you know, we could say, well, you know, that student is, is probably going to be very temporarily in poverty uh, while they're a student. Um, maybe they get some help from their parents um, and family. So, you know, the situation that they're in is somewhat different than the, the mom that, you know, is working at the grocery store. But your point, which is really the key point of the book, is that we so often, and, and, and your examples are really good ones, we so often think about poverty as happening to somebody else, that it's some other group, it's some other, you know, uh, individual. It's never going to happen to me or to folks that look like me. And that's one of the really big myths of, of poverty. And I, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a bit, but you know, this kind of um, lifetime risk uh, of poverty research that I've been doing over the last 20 years 
shows that the vast majority of Americans at some point in their lives will experience poverty. So it very much is that person that you might walk by in the grocery store or somebody down the block that, uh, that may very well at some point experience poverty. And in fact, you yourself and I myself may at some point experience poverty. Uh, let's see. Let's do another one here. Uh, uh, how about a ski enthusiast who works half the year at a ski resort uh, at a job that pays $18 an hour plus tips uh, and collects unemployment the rest of the year? And if this if this example strikes you as surprisingly specific, <laughs> it's because <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I do spend a part of the year up in Mammoth Lakes. Uh, in the Eastern Sierra Nevada, which is a, a world-class ski destination. And so many of the locals up there, not many, but some would fall into this category. So they work part of the year for the mountain. And then the rest of the year, they kind of scrape by, collect some unemployment or, you know, pick up a few jobs here and there. So are those people, would they fit yeah. into the classification? Yep. Yeah, so so this is this is also an interesting example because when I was talking about how we measure poverty, we we tend to measure it on a yearly basis. You know, what's your overall annual income? But there's other research that looks at what if we just focus on poverty on a monthly basis? Mm. And what what this example points out is that somebody might be doing uh, well for part of the year, but the other part of the year, they're not doing well. Now, if we just use an annual measure, we don't pick that up at all. But if we use a monthly measure of poverty, we do see that. And here's an interesting statistic. When you do that, and this is from the Census Bureau, uh, and you look at monthly income, if, if you look over a period of three, three to four years, it turns out that about 35% of all Americans during a three to four year period will experience at least a couple months of being in poverty. Like that's a, that's a really large percentage in a fairly short period of time. But what that is saying is that there's a lot of things that happen during the course of a year. Certainly we've been seeing this you know, recently with the pandemic and, you know, people out of work or looking for work or, or whatever the circumstances may be. So, so, so your example of the ski instructor is an interesting one that kind of gets at this kind of dimension of poverty. Well, and also I think your comments there really flag up this issue. As you say, that's a huge percentage over a relatively short period of time. So the more you expand that out, you know, five years, 10 years, now you're capturing more and more people who at some point will experience poverty. And, you know, that I think many of us know that from personal experience that we are at risk, right? Uh, but we don't always see it yeah. acknowledged in the media or by the politicians, how close people are to living on the edge, which is the title of one of your books. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and, and I know we'll, we'll, we'll touch upon this at the end of our talk, but um, one of the things that I wanted to do with my research is to make it accessible to a lot of people. And so what I did with a colleague of mine at Cornell is we developed what we call a poverty risk calculator. And this is based on hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cases. And what it is, it's analogous to the heart disease risk calculators that you find on the internet where you can go and you can say, okay, what's my blood pressure and cholesterol? What's my risk of a heart attack in the next 10 years? Well, what we've done is we've taken our data 
and put it together so that you can now look at your five, 10 and 15 year risk of poverty in the future. And that's based on five basic characteristics, your age, your education, your race, your gender and your marital status. And based on that, we can predict what the likelihood of poverty is. And for folks who go there and do this, a lot, of, a lot of you are going to be very surprised that your risk is higher than you might think. So this is a pretty, I think it's a pretty innovative tool that, that really allows people to kind of look a bit into their future to see what may happen economically. Yeah, and maybe gives us a little more sympathy for us to think, wow, you know, I'm only a cancer away. I'm only a car accident away. I'm only a divorce and, you know, other tragedy away. And it really is pretty heartrending to think of that kind of bad luck happening to somebody, you know, you've another title of your book has to do with, you know, sort of this there, but for fortune go I. Yeah. And and that's so, um, you know, that's so true. I mean, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, uh, your your research that shows over the course of a lifetime, the risk of poverty is really high at some point. And, and people say, why is that? And it's exactly what you're saying is that over a long period of time, things happen to us that we don't anticipate. So things like getting sick or losing a job or a family splitting up or a pandemic happening. These are things that are largely beyond our control and that they have the um, they can have the effect of throwing people into poverty. And so when you look over periods of time, it's much more likely that something like this will happen. Okay, so a little more on the statistics side. Uh, How many people in poverty work full time? Well, um, it turns out that if you look at folks in poverty who are not children, who are not elderly, who are not in school, um, and who are not disabled, you know, which we would, would say those folks probably um, do not need to be working. Then it turns out that about two thirds of folks in poverty are currently employed and working. The rest are probably looking for jobs. Um, but, you know, th- this sort of myth that, well, people in poverty are just lazy and just don't want to work is not the case at all. The other way to think about this is that poverty is, you know, we often think about uh, folks in poverty as being there for long periods of time. It turns out that the typical length of time in poverty is fairly short, a year or two, and then people get back on their feet. Um, So if we look at the work history of people before and after being in poverty, almost all of them have been working. So if we think about it that way, you know, most folks in poverty actually are working. And if they're not, they were, they've been working in the past or will work in the future. Yeah. Again, I think that brings home, at least for me, this idea of that people that I see who are really working hard, I, I see it, especially in that mountain town where I spend a lot of the, uh, often a big part of the year where people are working really, really hard uh, but they're still just barely making enough money to survive. It, it's, it, you know, it's, yeah. it's one of the myths that you've talked about a lot, but for me personally, it, it's just really 
striking that people are working so dang hard and still they just can't make enough money to cover their costs. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's a really important point. Um, you know, some of the hardest working people are folks that are working at low wage jobs, you know, that are really backbreaking kinds of jobs and, and having to put together two or three jobs. And the, the problem here, and this is a structural problem, is that more and more of the jobs that, that our economy is producing tend to be low paying jobs, um, service sector jobs, jobs that may be part time, jobs that don't have benefits, particularly health benefits. And so, you know, you find people working, but just as you said, they're, they're um, you know, working extremely hard, but they're not able to really get themselves out of poverty. And, and, the, and the reason is because the jobs themselves don't pay, pay enough. And so, you know, that's a, you know, we'll get to this, but that's certainly another myth out there that, you know, if only individuals were to work hard enough, you know, they'd be able to, uh, to avoid poverty. And, and, you know, I've talked to hundreds of people in poverty and um, many, as some of them are some of the most hardworking people I've ever met, and yet they're still struggling. Yeah. the Same, same for me. Okay, let's talk just a second about methodology, because we're going to talk more about cost of living. So how much of our calculation of poverty, you know, we've drawn this line in the sand, mm -hmm. this is the poverty level. So for the naysayers out there, people who are thinking, well, maybe, you know, how did we draw that line? How would you answer the question about how is our calculation of poverty really a comparison of relative wealth compared to the rest of the country versus really based on costs of living considerations. Well, if we go back to what I was, what we were talking about in terms of the poverty line, the way that that was established was to figure out what's the minimally adequate diet for the year for a household. And then taking that number and multiplying it by three. Now, why was that multiplied by three? Because the argument was that, um, uh, that the one third of somebody's income goes for food, the other two thirds goes for other costs. But again, if we think about, you know, that family of three on $20,000 or less, you know, it's, uh, it's extremely, extremely tight in terms of, you know, what you have to spend on the sort of the daily necessities. The other thing that's happened over time is that when the poverty line, as I mentioned before, as the poverty line was established in 1964, what's happened during that period of time is other costs have really increased um, that really weren't as important then as that they are now. So for example, childcare costs can be extremely expensive. Housing costs, um, particularly in some locations are, you know, extremely high. And so, so yeah, I would say, you know, uh, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, the poor here aren't so bad off. Actually, you know, if you look at poverty in the United States and compare our country to other industrialized countries, uh, what you find is the United States has the most poverty, has the most extreme poverty, and we also have the most extreme income and wealth inequality among all of these countries. 
So let's dig into that a little bit. Well, so I'll, let me ask this question first, but I think we're going to get at that. So I, I love how you and I mimic the naysayers in the same way. This, well, <laughs> so one of the one of the myths or uh, sometimes what people say about the poor in the United States after they say, well, they say when they go and look at the assets sometimes that people who are living in poverty have, they think, well, it's not so bad. They've got TVs. They often are living in a pretty good house. Um, they may have air conditioning. So what would, how would you respond to those things, those uh, comments? Yeah. So I guess I would, one way to respond to that is a study that the uh, Federal Reserve does every year. And they ask people the question of, if, if you were to have a uh, emergency and you needed um, $400 in cash right now, would you be able to, to do that? And, the, and this past year, 37% of Americans said they would not have $400 in cash to meet an emergency. That's almost 40% of the population. Um, that says that there are lots of folks that don't have many assets, and, and particularly liquid assets. The other thing about that, um, the question, because that it, there's a report that comes out every year, for not every year, but every few years from the Heritage Foundation that makes this argument that, well, the folks in poverty have you know, air conditioning or a cell phone or whatever. The thing, again, to keep in mind is that these things are acquired over a lifetime. And so you may be experiencing poverty right now, but those things that you've acquired may be uh, from the past, you know, when you were doing okay. You don't just get rid of everything all at once. And so, you know, yeah, maybe folks do have air conditioning and maybe they do have uh, a telephone, but uh, I, again, I, I think that if we were to look at these situations, we'd find that folks are really in pretty dire situations. And, and, and again, the statistic that 37% of Americans do not have $400 to cover an emergency is, is pretty telling. It's really shocking. Yeah. So, so speaking of shocking, on Twitter, Someone posted a video and I've looked high and low for this thing. I think I did find similar videos where people are now just going around and videoing the condition of some of our streets in our larger, larger urban cities. This particular video that just really, I can't even describe the impact that it had on me was about 10 minutes and it was a section of Philadelphia that I guess is known as basically being abandoned. And uh, uh, honestly, Mark, it's just, it's shocking. It looks like something out of hell. It's, you know, people wandering in the streets, very disorganized. The place, I mean, this is my uh, sort of revealing my own attitude, but the place is a Tip. I mean, there's just trash everywhere. There's garbage, people plowing through garbage, people shooting up on the streets. They're fighting, they're wandering in the street, clearly oblivious to traffic. And the other thing that's kind of shocking about it to me is the place has been completely locked down. So every storefront is covered with those barricades, those metal barricades. 
And there is no one who looks official in any way. There are no cops, uh, no uh, city official. It's, it's as though the place has just been turned over to whatever is going to happen that night. And so I, I couldn't help but react to the comment in your book uh, that quoting Lyndon Johnson saying, in a land rich in harvest, children just must not go hungry. And I felt as though maybe it's not so much about going hungry, but just that it's such an embarrassment to see, for me, to see that we've let this happen in in a big, proud city like Philadelphia. And so, yeah, I I, I don't yeah. know what, yeah, what what question to ask about that, except what what has happened. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And 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 you're right. The the quote from from President Johnson is just so telling that, you know, that this is a we are a wealthy country. We have the resources. We can do something to address these issues. And yet we choose not to. And in some ways, that's even worse than if we, if we, you know, really didn't have the resources. Um, you know, we we pride ourselves that this is a land of opportunity, and this is where uh, everybody who you know works can do okay. Well, but that's not the case, and so, and and you're right. I mean, you see these wide disparities. You know, here in St. Louis, we have uh, across the river East St. Louis, which is one of the poorest localities in the United States. And it's the same kind of conditions that you're talking about in Philadelphia. And there's something wrong. There's something wrong here that, you know, we have that situation. And I would say, you know, my argument would be in the argument we make in the book is that inequality and poverty are really uh, the result of structural failings. There are failings at the economic level, there are failings at the policy level, and until we begin to address these structural failings, we're going to continue to go down this road of having high poverty, high inequality. I'm gonna I'm gonna switch things up on you here a little bit and and dash off down this rabbit hole. So somewhere I I'm not sure where it might have been one of your co-authors commented that for decades they've been screaming into the wild about poverty. Mm. And felt as though no one was listening. And yet more recently, he or she mm-hmm. felt as though maybe the tide was turning a little bit. At least there was more acknowledgement about wealth inequality in the country. Do you feel that way? I do. I do. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I would say I'm guardedly optimistic. And, you know, what we say in the book is that really, and, and I think what, what that, um, that individual was saying, who, who wrote a little something at the end of a chapter, is that in the last 10 years, we've seen much more discussion about issues of inequality, um, issues of injustice, you know, I think that this really began with the Occupy movement in, in 2011, 2012, when, with the talk about the one and the 99%. More recently, we've had the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and you know, we've had uh, now, you know, folks on the progressive side of, side of the aisle are talking about things that were that would have been completely off the table a few years ago. So this idea of you know, the Biden administration having a, a, a turning the child tax credit into kind of a child allowance that ch- people with children could get $300 a month. 
Well, that's a, you know, that's kind of an, uh, a variation of a universal basic income, which is a fairly radical idea for the United States, but people are talking about that now. People are talking about, you know, we need to have a living wage. We need to get minimum wage up to at least $15 an hour. That's new that there's an emphasis on this. So I am guardedly optimistic. I think that we are in a period of time where people recognize that poverty and inequality uh, to a large extent is structural, and we need to address those structural problems, just as we need to address the racial injustices in this country that are also structural. So I'm I'm, uh, yes, I'm guardedly optimistic. Well, it's interesting that it's that it's taken some pretty extreme statistics, I think, to bring us to this point, because the wealth, the wealthy have gotten so much wealthier. You know, you start to see some of the analogies that people make, you know, that really bring it home, right? In in really simple terms, how much a billionaire makes in a day compared to, you know, the poor, hardworking person who's working two or three jobs. I think a lot, as the situation has gotten more extreme, the explanations in a way have gotten simpler. And I I feel as though that is helping. Do you feel the same way? Yeah. 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 And here's, here's a, here's a nice little um, visual sort of thing that that your listeners can, can uh, uh, latch onto. So there was uh, an economist who, a well-known economist who um, had an introductory textbook to economics. And in the first edition in 1948, he said, if we were to draw an income pyramid in the United States and uh, the top of the pyramid represented the the top of the income distribution and the bottom of the uh, pyramid, sort of the bottom, most of us would in 1948 fall within a few feet. If, If we had this pyramid made out of blocks, and the top of the, the, the peak of that pyramid would be represented by the Eiffel Tower. So in 1948, if you imagine the income distribution, the Eiffel Tower is the very top of the income distribution. But most of us are within a few feet of the ground. That's in 1948. In the last edition of his textbook, we would still, most of us in terms of income would be within a few feet or a few yards of the ground. But now the income peak instead of being represented by the Eiffel Tower, would have to be represented by Mount Everest. And that is, you can sort of visually see the widening of the top to basically the rest of society. And that is what has happened in the United States, that wealth and income inequality have just gone, you know, have just increased dramatically really since the beginning of the 1970s. And again, as we were talking about, I think people are recognizing that this is actually a pretty troubling situation. Um, There's a lot of reasons for why this kind of wide inequality is really troubling for our society and for our democracy. Yeah, that that, uh, picture, whether on paper or in your mind, is really shocking. When I came across that in the book, I had to pull out my notebook and start writing that down. I mean, the difference between the Eiffel Tower and Mount Everest is, you know, I think that's what's helpful with some of these analogies is it's not a small thing. It's an absolutely colossal, mind-blowing difference between the Eiffel Tower and Mount Everest. And so, yeah, it's like 
oh my gosh, this is really a, an extraordinary difference. Yeah. And, and, you know, and as I said, you know, this is troubling on a number of, of uh, levels, but, you know, really, um, I think the most troubling is that this kind of inequality really can kind of corrupt our democratic system, our democracy, because, as as you and I know, and and as your listeners know, you know, money has become, you know, played a, a much greater role in terms of elections and getting people elected, and you know, money is now everything. And if you have a small group of people that really control those resources, um, their agenda is going to be the one that's going to be, you know, that politicians are going to pay attention to. And, and unfortunately, I think that that has been happening more and more over time. Yeah, the power that comes with that kind of wealth is really is really literally disproportionate, right? So you have a few number of people who just wield just an astonishing amount of power. So one of the things that I often notice about American culture, I lived in Europe uh, for a lot of years mm. and find that uh, it's not it's not the case all across the United States. I think in the Midwest, we're a little more balanced when it comes to wealth, but especially in California, People are very enamored with wealth. They're interested in reading about rich people. They admire rich people. There's just something that comes with, with wealth that they, you know, they don't make this up out of their brains. This is promoted by media and, and other people who are uh, using rich people for entertainment. But one thing that I notice about that is that means that when people aren't wealthy, they feel guilty. And that's one of the things that bothers me about this is I think a lot of times people who are experiencing financial problems are ashamed. And so often they hide that. But I'm, I worry then that that passes on to their judgment of other people who are poor. And so we tend to have a culture that is not sympathetic to the poor in this country, that we do look down on them. We think it's their fault. And I'm, I want to ask, do you feel as though a compounding factor of that is that when we talk about the poor, we often talk about the homeless and that the, as a friend of mine says, who works in homelessness, the face of poverty is often the homeless on the streets. And how does that affect how we view poverty? Yeah, so those are really, that's really um, important and interesting comments that you're making. So there's two things that I wanna sort of reflect on. Um, I think you're spot on in terms of, you know, the way that we view poverty in this country is really as individual failure, that there's something wrong with the person. They're, they're not working hard enough. They made bad decisions, you know, variations on that. And therefore, there's a tremendous amount of shame that comes with being in poverty. And the interesting thing is that in my uh, very first book, uh, Living on the Edge, I asked folks who are using uh, the safety net program I asked them, you know, you know, why did you, um, why do you need to use the program? And and most people would say, well, you know, um, I was laid off from my job, or my family split up, or I got sick, or you know, something that was like beyond their control. And then I asked uh, folks, 
Well, why do you think most people are, are in poverty and are using a safety net program? And most of them would say they're not working hard enough. Uh, they're, they're using drugs or alcohol. So the point of this is that even for those in a stigmatized group like poverty, they often carry the overall image that society has, not about them, but about others in the group. Um, and, and that shows you how deeply seated these ideas are. You know, one of the reasons why the United States, I think, is such an outlier in terms of us not providing universal health care or, you know, all kinds of things is because we've really been steeped and our history is steeped in the, the idea of rugged individualism, that you do it on your own. You don't depend on others. You certainly don't turn to the government for help. And if you can't do it on your own, then you're to blame. And, and that's the way we've, we've often tended to view poverty. So to your second um, question about sort of the face of poverty, I think that's right. I mean, homelessness is such a, a visual kind of thing. And so when we, you know, the, the kind of poverty that I often see is the person down the street that you might never think are in, in poverty. That's by far the most common face of poverty, but, but we don't really see that. What we see is the person who's sleeping on the sidewalk. And those are folks that, you know, is extreme, extreme poverty. You know, you, you can't get much, much lower than that, than not having a home and being and sleeping on the street. So we often take that image and we do this also with race as well. We take the image of sort of the, the black guy who's on the street, homeless, as that is what poverty is. And that's, an, that's a, certainly an important segment, but it's actually only a small segment of everyone who does experience poverty. Yeah. And just to mention one more thing about homelessness, my friend who works in the homelessness area has said to me, you know, really be careful about judging the homeless population by what you see, because many of the homeless are, in fact, mothers with children living uh, in their car. So I, that, that's yeah. a good reminder to us that we have to be careful about what we quote unquote see. Yeah, in my um, in my book on the American dream, I actually um, it was an interesting book. I, I interviewed people from all walks of life uh, in the sort of in the St. Louis area, but I interviewed a couple people that were homeless, and actually both of them were working. Uh, you know, had a job, but again, it's what we were talking about earlier. It just you know they just couldn't afford the rent, and 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 were sleeping out on the streets, but. You know, but what you see there is not the whole story, which is such an important uh, point to uh, to sort of reiterate. Okay, so as a, a former financial person, I'm really interested in these calculations about how much it would cost to really make a big difference in attacking a poverty attacking poverty in the United States compared with the cost of poverty, like what poverty. Uh, automatically or inherently costs society in terms of medical costs or prison costs or all these other things that sort of result from a life of poverty. So uh, yeah. talk us through that yeah. a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So this was a question that um, that I was interested in and work with a graduate student here on this on this particular question. And we often think, you know, one of the myths is 
well, you know, um, poverty is costly to those who are in poverty. You know, it's certainly a negative kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't really affect me economically. And uh, so what we wanted to do was to do a rough estimate of actually how much does childhood poverty cost the United States on an annual basis? And what we did is we used, you know, the latest research that was available. And we really just focused on three areas. There's many other areas, but we didn't have data for that. So we looked at uh, what is the cost of poverty in terms of increasing children's um, uh, ill health? Because we know that poverty is associated with less positive health outcomes. The second thing we looked at was economic productivity. So what effect does, does poverty have on children's future economic productivity? And then the third thing was, what is the cost of childhood poverty on increased incarceration and criminal justice costs? Because we know there's an association there. So we factored these things in. And again, we tried to be very conservative. And our estimate was that on an annual basis, childhood poverty costs the United States slightly more than $1 trillion. And put that in perspective, in 2015, which is where this data was from, uh, the total federal budget was 3.7 trillion. So we're talking about 28% of the entire federal budget. Here's the point. The point is we're paying for poverty. Yeah. But the way that we're paying for it is on the back end of the problem rather than the front end of the problem. And you mentioned being an economic sort of financial type of person it's always more expensive to pay for a problem on the back end than the front end. And then the other analysis that we did in this paper was to say, okay, let's figure out if we were to reduce poverty, for every dollar we could reduce childhood poverty, how much would we save in the future in terms of averting these costs? And our estimate was that for every dollar spent on reducing poverty for children, we would say between seven and $12 down the road. Now that's a huge bang for the buck. Yeah. You know, you're getting like uh, $10 almost for every dollar that you're spending. And again, it's because if you let a problem go, it's just like in healthcare. If you let a problem go and you, and you let it get much worse, it's going to be a lot worse than if you deal with it in the beginning. And so, so the point here is that, not only is addressing childhood poverty and poverty in general the morally right thing to do in this country, given our resources, but it's also economically the smart thing to do. It's smart for us to invest in our human potential. That's what we should be doing. We shouldn't be just throwing it away, especially in a global economy. And so I think this is a very strong argument to say there's a real economic kind of self-interest argument for addressing poverty in the United States. I'm reminded of that expression, a stitch in time. Ah, that saves was it. Nine. Oh, <laughs> that was the one I was looking for. A oh, stitch that... in time saves nine. Yes. Yeah, in this case, it sounds like a stitch in time <laughs> saves ten. <laughs> but, That's right. But then it doesn't rhyme. But... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I. You know, there's. I always want to think about why these things persist. You know, is it cultural? Is it economic? And then we come to the question of, well, who benefits mm, from poverty, mm -hmm. right? If you want to take a really cynical view, is there some reason 
that that we are in the situation that we're in. So I'll just ask you, yeah. so who who is yeah. benefiting from poverty? Yeah. So so this is kind of how we um, get to the end of this book, where we you know each chapter takes on a a myth of poverty and 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 we present you know the the best sort of research out there to show that you know these myths don't hold water that you know so then the question is well well if that's the case then how come these myths continue and we ask the question we ask that question and and my co-author um Heather Bullock talks about kind of some of the psychological reasons but I talk about some of the sociological reasons and and one of the ways to approach that question is, yes, who, who does benefit from continuation of these myths? And so I talk about um, three particular groups that I think benefit. The first one has been politicians. So politicians mm-hmm. over the years have routinely used the example of the welfare freeloader and the takers, not the makers. Um, this kind of a thing to score political points uh, in their uh, amongst their constituency, particularly conservative politicians. But Bill Clinton also used this issue as well. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, we, we see this over a number of years that politicians have really used these myths to score political points. I think a, a second group are those folks who are benefiting from the system that we have of wide inequality, those folks at the top, because they can say, look, I earned this and you didn't, and therefore we should continue with the status quo. You know, that's a very convenient sort of logic. So so folks at the the top are benefiting from the continuation of these myths. You know, if on the other hand, we say, you know what, the reason why we have poverty and inequality is structural, we need to do something about it. Well, that threatens people with the resources. So I think that that's another group that, you know, clearly benefits from these myths. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's a very, very important question to ask, you know, why do these poverty myths continue despite the evidence against them? And really, who is benefiting from the continuation of these myths? Well, let me ask this question. It may be a little bit hard. I know we're starting to run out of time here, but I'm curious. We've seen such disruption of life because of COVID-19 and the pandemic, the lockdown, now supply chain issues. I mean, the last two years have just been really disruptive. Is there anything that we've learned from that period about giving cash directly to people or uh, so much disruption in the workforce? Are there things yeah. that takeaways from that that you, that you think are interesting? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Yes, I think there are. I think that you know what this showed and and as i mentioned earlier the biden administration has put in place this sort of child allowance we've also provided a lot of pandemic relief and what the research has shown is that if we didn't do those things poverty instead of the you know 11.4% that i said was were in poor last year would be more like 16 17 18% as a result 
what what these kind of programs in place have done is really protected people from from falling into poverty. And so I think this is a really good example to show that these kinds of policies can have a very positive effect in, in again, protecting folks from falling into poverty. I mean, it's it's unfortunate that a a pandemic had to come along to show this, but you know, I, I think this is one of the lessons learned. And, you know, in the um, the Biden administration wants to make this child tax credit uh, permanent in the future. We'll see if that happens or not. But I think that there's pretty strong evidence, you know, given what has happened, that it that it actually has a really strong effect in protecting particularly children from falling into poverty. Yeah, it's uh, for me personally, it's the thinking about the children and you know their potential impact, positive and negative, over the course of their life. That's a that's really a powerful argument for me. So let's see. I want to kind of put two questions together here. If there are things that you would encourage people to do to get involved in this to make a positive impact on poverty, and then is there any play any uh, resources that you would like to refer people to before I let you go? Yeah, so I always try to think of that question because um, you know the question of what can people do because you know it, you know you 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 sort of read my book and 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 you uh, you know hopefully it gives you a good understanding of the issue, but then you're always left with well, what can I do? What can I do as an individual? And I think there's many, many things that people can do. And there's a variety of ways in which you can be active in terms of, you know, really beginning to address these issues. Um, you know, there's all kinds of groups and organizations that are interested in, in sort of social justice and interested in issues of poverty and inequality that one can get involved in. One can try to get involved more on a political level and, and influence, you know, your legislators and the people that are representing you. You know, and maybe a really simple way is just, you know, in your in your daily discussions, you know, when, when you talk to people and maybe somebody, you know, you encounter somebody says, well, you know, the poor just aren't working hard enough. You can say, no, actually, that's not the case. And, and here's some evidence and trying to begin to change the mindset. I think that changing the mindset out there is absolutely fundamental to creating change. We need to think about poverty, not as an issue of them, but as an issue of us. Now, for your the, the second question you had um, uh, is resources that are out there. And actually what I've done with, uh, with my colleague, again, at Cornell, is we've created a website. It's called Confronting Poverty. And if you just put that in and Google that, it'll pop right up. Um, this is kind of a... Uh, a storehouse of information about poverty and inequality that everybody can access. It's all accessible and free and everything. And it has a discussion guide. It has resources. It has the poverty risk calculator that I mentioned earlier. And this is a, a really good resource for people to use, not only for themselves, but to share with others who are interested in these issues, because it's based upon the best kind of social science research that's out there. And I think it has a lot of really great resources. We have a lot of links to other things that, that are of interest. So I would really, you know, I just, and actually, 
this is being used by a lot of folks around the world. We've had, um, we have people from over 200 countries that have used this so far. We've had over one and a half million uh, folks visit this site. You know, it's wow. been up and running for about two or three years, but it's being used in, in university courses and for, you know, religious organizations and community organizations. So, I would highly recommend folks to to take that to take a look at that. All right, I I want to say one more thing about the book uh, before I let you go. So the book is poorly understood. What America gets wrong about poverty it came out earlier this year, and really very interesting book. I highly recommend it. It really addresses in a very systematic way the myths that are out there. So, Mark, thank you so much for writing the book and for coming on the show and for the work that you do. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Jennifer. It's a delight getting a chance to talk and and discuss these issues with you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music. 